you tonight for what you're doing. We thank you for your word. We thank you even as we were worshiping tonight. Such an awesome presence of God coming in here. Lord, we just thank you, Holy Spirit, for empowering this place, anointing this time. But, but Father, I just thank you as, as we get into the word of the Lord, we need the word that you would speak through me, your living seeds of truth under a mighty anointing that will go into good soil of hearts and minds and lives that are prepared by the Holy Spirit right now. Father, I thank you for the Holy Spirit moving upon people that are going to be listening to this sermon, that they, all of us, we can give the Lord our best ear, our full attention, our focus. We will be good soil for the Word of God to land in, and that it will be watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. Lord, let your Word be like a light shining that dispels darkness. Let it be, Lord, a washing of the water of the Word. Let it be a sword that penetrates that the Word of God will get where it needs to get and accomplish what it needs to. Let the winds of your Spirit carry it out among the nations. And Lord, we submit this unto you and we resist the devil because Jesus said the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So Lord, we bind up anything of the enemy right now in Jesus' name that would try to hinder this Word from getting where it's supposed to, accomplishing what it's supposed to. We command it to be bound in Jesus' name and back off right now. And Lord, we thank you for your mighty angels just clearing away any hindrances to your kingdom purposes. And we stand on the promise your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. We thank you for everything accomplished in and through this time that you will be done. We believe it and we expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Revelation chapter 17 tonight, and we're going to deal with what's called the whore of Babylon, which is a Jezebel spirit, but in particular, it's a one-world religion. We're going to deal with that, okay? So we've been going through the book of Revelation very pragmatically, very systematically, um, just chapter after chapter. I've been doing my best to try to read the entire chapter to you and talk about it, but I really wanted to take time with this because we're living out a lot of these things. And also... Um, we're living out the end times, rather, and we're moving rapidly into this. Now, the book of Revelation is not written in chronological order all the time. This is a good example of where it's not. Last week, we dealt with the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Well, you're going to have to rewind now because now we're looking at the day and age that you and I are living right now. So you're going to start seeing more and more of this one-world religion. And I'm going to explain that as we go, but it's happening right now and has been for the last couple of decades. So um, anyway, this is this again is out of chronological order from last week. And um, let's go ahead and start reading this, and I'll explain some things as we go. If you're taking notes, there'll be probably a few things you want to jot down. But this is something I can understand why a baby Christian, this would be kind of confusing because there's a lot of symbolism. But when it's explained, it's really not confusing at all. It's very easy to understand. So Revelation 17, if you've got notes, uh, follow along. If you want to turn some of you are listening to this through, uh, you know, some kind of podcast or something, you want to follow along with me. So Revelation chapter 17, starting with verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore, which is translated like a prostitute, 
who sits on many waters, whom the kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality, and those who live upon the earth have become drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. Now, it's very important that I explain something here, okay? When it's dealing with this whore Babylon, you're dealing with a spirit. You're dealing in particular with the Jezebel spirit, okay? And so this is a spiritual thing. And then also not only a satanic spirit, but when you're dealing with this, you're also dealing with um, the fact that sexual immorality is not really physical sexual activities. It's very important that you understand this. In the Bible, when you're dealing with the, the prophetic books, God has always viewed idolatry as spiritual immorality, that people are being unfaithful to him by worshiping other gods. In the same way that somebody would cheat on their spouse with some kind of an affair. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when you're dealing with this, you're, you're dealing with a Jezebel spirit. Now let me explain a few things. And again, if y'all could please, as little moving around as possible, just help me preach this tonight. Look this way. Give me your best ear. Let's get focused on this, okay? But when you're dealing with this, the, the idolatry that's there and the Jezebel spirit, let me explain a few things. Number one, there's a principal spirit that rules over in Satan's kingdom. It rules over all forms of idolatry, the worship of other gods, the occult, all of that, there's a principal spirit that's like a principality over that. And the principality, uh, in the Bible, it uses the name Baal. Um, personally, I believe that this is the same spirit that I'm referring to. Um, another name, if you want to look this up, you can Google this and see in, that there's imagery associated with this. But it's a spirit that we would call Baphomet. Um, the go to Mendes, but it's, a, it's an ancient, powerful, ruling spirit that oversees various forms of idolatry around the world. So let me give you an example. So you look at Islam, and Islam worships Allah. That's a principality. In the Bible, I believe it's the prince of Persia that you read about in Daniel. But beyond that, there's a higher spirit of Baal that oversees all of it. So it's not just Islam, but Buddhism. So you have a spirit, a principality behind Buddhism. But above that is Baal. Does that make sense? So all these different religious systems around the world, there seems to be a central spirit of Baal. And those that are involved in any type of idolatry or any type of occult practices, they have a strong connection with Baal. Now, here's why that's important. Because Baal has always been like the masculine, but then you always have this feminine. And you see it through the ages. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. In Egypt, you see Isis and Osiris. In ancient times with Nimrod and his wife, Semiramis, there's always been a male, female. In the Bible, it was what? Baal and Asherah. But it's, the, it's like it's the same ancient spirit with different names, 
Does, does this make sense? It's, it's the same thing. It just, when it goes into different cultures, it takes on different names and, and it amalgamates itself into what they're accustomed to. But it, all of this ultimately is going back to this Baal and the female Jezebel and then ultimately to Satan himself. So this is the way it works. You have this Baal spirit that oversees all this idolatry but see, you have a female counterpart, Jezebel. And this whore of Babylon, here's how Jezebel works. The Jezebel spirit is a very seducing spirit that wants to seduce people into idolatry. And it seduces people into the occult. One way or another, whether they have some kind of a, a lust for power or to have some kind of an esoteric knowledge that others don't have, or some kind of a pursuit there to get wealth or something, but it's a seducing spirit. So Baal sets up the idolatrous systems, but Jezebel begins to seduce people into the worship of it. It's a very seducing spirit. And so Jezebel here, the horror of Babylon, it says that she sits upon the waters, meaning that she has worldwide influence over the nations, and she's the one that is seducing the kings of the earth to commit immorality before God, meaning that they worship, ultimately, they're going to be worshiping the Antichrist and his image, you see? And so Jezebel is like a seducing spirit that's sucking people into this. And it also says that the, all those living upon the earth have become drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. In other words, she has worldwide influence to seduce people into idolatry. And then, so anyway, this is painting a picture here. I'm hoping I'm doing a good job of conveying this. But in uh, verse 3, it says, and this angel was speaking to John, okay, who was writing all this. And the, the Bible says here, John said, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman, this is the whore of Babylon, Jezebel, sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, this is interesting. Now, this beast was full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. We've already been through this, remember? This is the Antichrist system. The seven heads are like seven world-ruling spirits. The ten horns are the ten land masses around the world that have kings over them and principalities. And so John is seeing this. He's seeing the Antichrist world system, his Babylonian system. And let me stop for a moment and explain this. This is new to some people too. So the way the Bible pictures the Antichrist is this. There's this beast, and the Antichrist is seen as some kind of this wild-looking beast, and it has seven different heads. So you guys seen some mythology like Mithra and other, you see this beast with seven heads, okay? Well, this is like the way that the Bible portrays the Antichrist because he's going to have eventually worldwide influence. The seven heads represent nations, well, I'll explain this in a moment, but it's like seven world-ruling type spirits. And then this thing has ten horns. Now, when the Antichrist comes to power, there's going to be ten areas of the world, whether it's like the Far East, 
Europe, North America, South America. There's going to be seven different land mass, or ten different land masses that they are going to connect with him. But through that, he's going to rule the world. So that's the ten horns, because every one of those land masses are going to have a king over it in the natural, but it's also going to have a satanic principality over it. And so the woman, this whore of Babylon, is riding this beast system. So this is a worldwide Babylonian system that has influence all over the world. It's like a one-world economy where you have to take a mark or you won't be able to buy or sell. It's a one-world military. It's a one-world geopolitical thing where it's a unified uh, government's. And, but it's like, even though the landmass is autonomous in that it has its own ruler and it's its own respective nation, but all of it is connected to the Antichrist, you see. So he's ruling this Babylon. But here's the interesting thing. The woman, the whore of Babylon, sits upon all of it, having influence over all the nations. It's a powerful, deluding spirit, Jezebel spirit, over the nations that will cause people to worship the Antichrist. It will cause people to worship his idol, to take his mark, and it's going to lead the nations astray. They're going to be literally drunk with that idolatry. That's what it says about them. So this woman, this whore Babylon, this Jezebel spirit, is clothed in purple and scarlet. These are like royal things, royal robes. She's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead is written mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk also. Now, this is interesting. So you have this seducing spirit now over the nations. And I'm going to tell you, I'll try to explain some of this as we go, but it's concerning because this is, this is end-time prophecy, but we're seeing the nations already beginning to align with much of this. Even here in America, you're seeing that Jezebel spirit. You're seeing idolatry in many levels. And so you're seeing here what I just described, the one-world government and the, this seducing spirit. But this is what also is going to be this horror Babylon spirit is also going to so hate the Christians that it says this. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Here's what's going to happen. Just as this Jezebel spirit will seduce the nations to worship the Antichrist in his image, at the same time, this spirit will stir up great hatred toward true Christians because they will not worship the Antichrist. They will not bow down and worship his idol, and they refuse to take his mark. So this whore of Babylon spirit will also be responsible for the bloodshed, the martyrdom of Christians. Let me tell you about the Jezebel spirit. If the Jezebel spirit does not get its way, it becomes extremely 
vicious. And whenever there are actually Christians still here during the tribulation because they didn't get right beforehand and make the rapture, they're still here. They are going to go against the whore of Babylon, and they're going to refuse to go along to get along. And so this spirit is going to stir up absolute hatred toward them to the point that it results in the bloodshed, the martyrdom of Christians the first three and a half years, including the 144,000. And so, and then it says, the angel said to me, why do you wonder when you see all this? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and 10 horns. So let me explain something else here before we go on. See, historically, and it will be the case here, politically and religiously, they work together. Let, let me show you what I mean. See, even here in America, because here in America, Christianity has had such a, our Judeo-Christian heritage has been so pervasive that even though we know politically that a lot of people that get into politics, their life reflects that they do not know Jesus Christ and they are absolutely not true Christians, yet they will say they're a Christian. And they will find that, let me explain this too, even though we know that there is true biblical Christianity in America, there's, how many knows that there's also a institutionalized religious system that calls itself Christian that is not Christian? They do not adhere to the Bible. They do not require somebody to be born again and repent of their sins. It is just a religious thing. So these politicians will call themselves Christians even though they're not, and I believe many of them know they're not. They're just doing it for political purposes. But then they find the institutionalized form of, of fake Christianity that will endorse them. Oh, y'all follow me? They will say, these, these fake Christians will have clergy that will go in and pray. They'll bless them. They'll, they'll pray over their abortions and all the things that they're trying to do. And it's like they're acting like they're putting God's sanction on it. But see, here's what's happening. Politically, and this religious fake Christian stuff is working together to help each other out. By the politicians endorsing them, they get clout, finances. And by them endorsing the politicians, the politicians are able to get elected. Because it's as though God is sanctioning things, even though he's not. So religion and politics historically have really worked together. And in other parts of the world, so let's say in Southeast Asia or somewhere where, where maybe there's Buddhism, the politicians will say, I'm a Buddhist and will be in good graces with the Buddhist monks and their leaders who will endorse them. And so religiously, they help each other out. Okay, so you're following this. This is what's going to happen with the Antichrist. So let me just explain it, and then we'll move on. So the false prophet will emerge. He's going to be something like a pope or somebody like that. I believe it will be a pope. But he's going to emerge, and he's going to be a religious leader. And this religious leader, and let me tell you, for the last couple decades, 
You need to look this up for yourself. For the last couple decades, the last couple popes have worked very diligently to unite the religions of the world. Pope John Paul II, the last pope that, interestingly enough, left office. They never do that. They always die in office. Why did he leave? That was very interesting. But anyway, they work diligently. The popes have had Muslim leaders come to the Vatican to pray. Popes have gone to Buddhist temples to pray with the Buddhist. They've participated in things like the burning of the smudge pot, which is a whole Native American occult thing. But they've been involved in trying to bring the religions together and find some kind of common ground. This has been going on. And so there's going to be, and it's probably the current pope of this time, there's going to be a religious leader the Bible calls the false prophet who will perform some kind of a satanic ritual where the Bible says the beast that came up out of the earth, there's going to be some kind of, I believe personally, it's going to be that spirit of Baal. That same ancient spirit that oversees all the idolatry. Remember me talking about that? The false prophet is going to do some kind of a ritual that there's going to be an ancient powerful spirit that's going to come up and possess and take him over. And he, the Bible says in Revelation 13, he's going to be so powerful in witchcraft that he's literally going to perform signs and wonders even to the degree of calling fire down from heaven in front of people. And the Bible says that will happen. So this is going to be a leader who has a powerful spirit in him and who's going to be a powerful like uh, warlock or whatever words you want to use, sorcerer, wizard. He's going to be a powerful occultist powerful in the dark arts, and he is going to have the ability to help bring the religions together on common ground. All of a sudden, all these religious systems, including the fake Christianity, the fake Christianity that sanctions abortion, the fake Christianity that ordains homosexuals and will perform homosexual marriages. Y'all follow me here. There's a fake institutionalized thing, that it's not true Christianity, but the world will accept it as true Christianity. That, along with all the other religions, will come together under this false prophet. He will find a way to bring the religious systems of the world together under this unified system. And here's what he's going to do. As he's united the religions, he's then going to promote the Antichrist, the politician. And the Antichrist will in turn also promote him. And so once again, you're going to see politics and religion working together to help each other out. And because this false prophet has so much influence religiously, it's going to help this Antichrist come to great power over the nations. Not just over one nation but he's going to be able to gain power over all nations. Because see, right now, what is one of the greatest dividers of humanity right now? Religion. Religion. And so this false prophet will be able to bring the religions together, and they in turn will worship him. This is important that you know this. And so the Antichrist will come to great political power but it's this religious system that has helped him get there. 
It's promoted him. All right. And so in verse 8, let's pick up here now that you kind of see where this is going. In verse 8, it says, the beast you saw, this is Babylon. This is the Antichrist global system and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who live on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see this beast that he was and is not and will come, which I'm going to explain that here in just a second. So he was. He is not now. Here's what that means, that whole two sentences there. This is what this means. See, the Bible calls the Antichrist system Babylon. Now, let let me say something because there's a lot of wonderful Bible teachers out there that use different words, and I don't think they're wrong. I think that they're all actually very good. For example, a lot of Bible teachers say that the Antichrist world system will be another Rome. It'll be like a revived Rome. That's true. I believe that's absolutely correct. You can see it's going to be primarily Europe, down to the Middle East, just like the Roman Empire, and that's a very good way of looking at it. Others call it like a revised Greece, because you know that the Alexander the Great took the world quickly. In the same way, they see the Antichrist and his system like another Greece. I believe that that's a good analogy. Nothing wrong with that. I believe they're right. But the Bible keeps calling this Babylon. And so I use the word Babylon to describe the system but it's, it's the same thing that they're saying. But here's, here's what this is saying. The beast you saw, this angel told John, it was, but it's not right now. But it's going to come back. You know what that is? He was saying that Babylon was, but right now you're living in the days of Rome. So it's not, but it will come again. Does that make sense? So let me say that again. The angel said to John, don't wonder about this because what you see, this beast with seven heads and ten horns, this beast system, this, this world government system, the Bible is calling it Babylon, and Babylon once was, but currently in your day, John, Rome is the power. It's not here now, but it will come again. It's like it resurrects up out of the abyss somehow. It's going to resurrect again and then go to destruction. So does that make sense? All right. And then verse 9. So here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains upon which the woman sits. I believe personally, I put this in parentheses here, this is the seven hills of Rome. Without belaboring this, I'm going to move on from this pretty quickly. I'll probably talk about more of this next week. But so... Jerusalem is seen as God's city. And I'm going to deal with Jerusalem later on, okay? But Jerusalem is like God's city. And what's in Jerusalem? There's various mountains. As a matter of fact, um, the, the hilltop there in Jerusalem, uh, the Temple Mount and all that, many times people say, well, Mount Zion, but that's like a spiritual reference, okay? But Jerusalem is seen like a God's city that has hills, okay? So Satan also counterfeits everything. So Satan is going to have his spiritual city that has hills. 
Does this make sense? So, I believe here, it says the seven heads are the seven mountains upon which the woman sits. I believe it is a reference, in my opinion, to the seven hills that are in Rome, specifically the Vatican. It's a reference to that. But it's not limited to that because there are also seven kings, okay? These are the seven heads. See, down through the ages, Israel has, heaven, has had seven, they will counting the Antichrist, seven major enemies. These are the seven heads of the beast. It says five of them have fallen, one is. So what are the great enemies of Israel that five of them has fallen? Well, let's go back. Egypt would be number one, wouldn't it? Then Assyria. Remember, Assyria took the northern tribes captive. Then after Assyria, you have Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, which took the southern tribes captive. Then after Babylon, you had the Medes and the Persians. Remember them? That's the story of Esther. She was living in the days of captivity to the Persians. Then after the Medes and Persians came what? Greece. Alexander the Great. And that's the days of the Maccabee story, the Hanukkah story. So you have five major enemies of Israel. And you know as well as I do that those five respected nations have had a strong principality over them. That's, the, that's what I'm trying to get at. That's the seven heads here of this beast, Israel's ancient enemies. And he says here, he said, five of them have fallen. One is currently. Which one was in John's day? Rome. So the five that have fallen, and in John's day, Rome, okay? And then he says, and another has not yet come. See, Jesus was cut off during the days of Rome. And so it's like God pushed pause on end-time prophecy for 2,000 years of the church age, but he's unpausing it in the very near future. And you have six enemies of Israel, and then you're going to see the Antichrist emerge with the seventh, the revived Babylon. And they're going to be the great enemy first to the church, but then an enemy to Israel. Okay? Is all this making sense? If you have questions, please ask after this. So five nations have fallen. One, Rome is in John's day, and there's an Antichrist Babylon to come. And it says, when he comes, Babylon, the Antichrist, he must remain for a little while. You know, this ruler, the Antichrist, if you think about it in regards to world history, he's not going to be here in this Babylonian system, isn't going to be here very long. His world reign is quite short, actually, compared to uh, history. And the beast, which was, talking about Babylon is not, is himself also an eighth, one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. Now, this is really interesting. I'm sorry if I've lost people, because I know some people are, are new to the book of Revelation. Those that's been with us the whole time, this probably makes sense. Now, Y'all, give me your best ear. This is very interesting and possibly the only place this is mentioned in the Bible. Um, there might be like veiled prophetic references somewhere else, but here's what this is saying. Remember, five have fallen. Rome was in John's day, and then Babylon is to come, the seventh, okay? 
But he said that this seventh will become an eighth. You know what that means? When you go on reading this, I'm going to read it and come back to that because it explains it. Okay, in verse 12, it says, the 10 horns which you saw are the 10 kings. Remember, there's 10 land masses that are going to align themselves with the Antichrist. But they will receive authority as kings with the beast, the Antichrist, for, for one hour. So in other words, their reign will be short-lived. All of this is going to be relatively short-lived, okay? They, these have one purpose, that these 10 rulers, they will give their power and authority to the Antichrist. So I'm, I'm going to come back to this eighth in just a moment. So the 10 rulers of different nations, you probably have like the Far East with China. You probably have up in the old Soviet Union area. You probably have Europe, etc. These 10 land masses, the Antichrist is going to have some type of a king over each one of them, like some kind of a czar, some kind of a ruler, that their purpose is that they will cause their nation to align with the Antichrist. All of it's going to be in league with him, okay? And so follow me because it's almost there. It says, now here's the interesting thing. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And those who are with him are called the called, chosen, and faithful. So these are the ones, these are the ones that eventually will come down to the Valley of Megiddo in Armageddon, and they will turn and try to wage war against Jesus. But as he splits the eastern sky, he will destroy them, Okay. And he said to me, the angel told John, the waters that you saw the prostitute upon are all the peoples and the nations of the world. The waters are all the different nations. The ten horns and the beast, now here it is, these will hate the prostitute, make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, this is really interesting here. As far as I know, this is the only place this is really described, but here's what's going to happen. The Antichrist is a politician. Is that a big shock? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's a bad joke. But he's going to be a politician, and he's going to rise to clout and power, and he's going to have all the nations come under his authority, okay? Why? Because the false prophet was like a John the Baptist forerunner. He rose to, the false prophet rose to power religiously. He was able to accomplish what nobody else has ever been able to accomplish. He was able to unify the religions of the world. And he's also got such supernatural power about him that he can perform miraculous signs and wonders. And so people are really looking at this guy. So what does the false prophet do? He says, everybody needs to look to our Savior over here, this individual. He's not going to call him the Antichrist. He's going to call him his name. He's, he's, he's going to cause everybody to look to him with such admiration. This, he, he's like some kind of a Savior, some kind of a Messiah. And he's going to assist his rise to power. And this politician, the Antichrist, will come to power. And as he unites the nations, they're going to become like a one-world currency Although they may still keep their names, it's all going to be linked. It's going to be like a one-world military. 
the, the nations will come together globalization, okay? And it's like the Antichrist and this religious system have worked together. Are y'all hearing me? The Antichrist and this religious system have worked together to help each other out, to come to, that he's come now to full power. But here's what's going to happen. See, at this point in time, he was a seventh. He was Babylon, number seven. But here's what's going to happen. Midway through the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to become a full-on tyrant, and he's going to be so self-absorbed He's going to view himself as God so much that he's going to go into Jerusalem and set himself in the temple and set up an image, an idol, and he's going to demand that people worship him as God. And here's the thing. That religious system, the false prophet system, he no longer wants that because it's now a hindrance. He wants everybody worshiping him as God. In other words, forget all of your religion and worship me. And so many Bible scholars believe that he's literally going to do something to destroy that. He's going to like send a bomb or something and blow up like the Vatican or blow up whatever headquarters of this religious system and burn it with fire. He's going to destroy it. Why? Because he wants to do it. It helped him. It was a prop that helped him get to where he's at, but now its usefulness is over. So destroy it, and now he wants to be worshiped as God. So the Antichrist now has morphed into like an eighth. Does this make sense? And this is going to be the final. He's like a Nimrod. He's the final world ruler. And it says this, that he's going to destroy that whore of Babylon. He's going to destroy that system. In verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This is where the Antichrist has become like a global tyrant. Isn't that something? That's the only place in the Bible that that's really explained that way. But the Antichrist morphs from that number seven, that Babylon, which unifies religions and unifies the nations and all that. He seems like a man of peace. Put down your weapons. We're going to all unify. What does it say in the Bible regarding the Antichrist? It's through peace that he will destroy many. He's going to come as a man of peace. He's going to be respective of religions, but there'll come a point in time where he's going to burn that with fire and he's going to want to be worshiped as God. All right. So let's move beyond this now. And I want everybody to hear as I close this out. Please hear this tonight because I feel that this is kind of a warning for Christians that are going to be listening to this. 1 Peter 5, 8, I'm just going to read these scriptures and then I'm going to share a couple things. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, the Bible warns us as Christians. And Peter said to us, he said, to be sober, to be watchful, 
because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. I remember seeing one time on this particular show that I was watching that there were some people that were out in the jungle and they, they had their video camera and they were in a tent and they heard a lion around their tent and they were terrified because the only thing separating them from the lion was a flimsy tent. And they had their video camera up and they were, they were talking really quietly and they were, they were scared. And we don't need to be scared of the devil because we have authority, but we also need to understand that he's a worthy adversary. Don't take spiritual warfare lightly. What I learned a long time ago is people that actually don't have a clue about spiritual warfare at all, this is how they talk. They'll say that the devil's stupid. No, he's not. They'll, they'll talk about spiritual warfare like, oh, they're powerless. They have nothing and all. That's not true. They have a limited power from the devil. And they downplay everything. That Listen, that is very foolish. You know, you can take a football team that's actually really got a lot of skill. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they're going to play a team that is inferior to them next week. But because they're, they get lifted up with pride, they think we're not even going to practice. We're going to spend the week just joking around, eating pizza, hanging out, playing video games. And you know what? Come Friday, that team that was actually inferior, they knew they were facing a difficult team. So they worked their rear ends off all week. You know what? The team that actually is superior will probably lose that Friday night because they got lifted up with pride and they underestimated their enemy. Let me tell you something. Don't underestimate the devil's kingdom. That's foolish. He does have some knowledge and some power, and he's, he, it's a serious thing. He doesn't fire blanks. It's serious. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And Jesus paid for our victory. In Revelation 12, verse 10, it said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser, I want everybody to say accuser. The accuser of our believing brothers and sisters has been thrown down at last. He who accuses them and brings charges of sinful behavior against them before our God day and night. So this is one of the highest levels of satanic warfare is Satan coming as an accuser. He will come as a tempter. But those that start growing up in Christ and get mature, temptation, you begin to learn how to overcome temptation. He also comes as a great deceiver, and that can be pretty serious because people that are deceived don't know they're deceived. They think you're the one that's deceived. So Satan can come as a great deceiver, and that's a very high-level warfare. But one of the highest levels of warfare of the devil is when he comes as an accuser. Because if he can find something in your life to accuse you in the courts of heaven, he can therefore cause, if, you, if we don't repent, we don't get it right, and we don't deal with it, then it can be permitted that he's able to set up an attack against your life, and it can be quite serious. And he also, as an accuser, how many knows that the devil needs to be able to use people, you see? As an accuser, what he'll do is he'll stir up people to come up under his influence 
that will also begin to accuse you. They will begin to attack you with all kinds of either lies or exaggerations or twisted truths, gossip, slander, malicious things. That's the accuser. And I'll tell you something else. You need to be careful how you pray because how many knows that we're called to be intercessors, not accusers? See, when we go before God, we don't need to be accusing other people, this, that, and the other, even though we may need to pray a certain way that God set his hand against evil. But we don't need to be going there as an accuser. We need to be going there as an intercessor and asking God's forgiveness and his mercy and that he would move in our lives and other people's lives. So be careful because the accuser is quite serious. So here's a few more scriptures, and I'm going to explain where I'm going with this. Matthew 24, 12 says, In the last days that we're living in, there will be an increase of wickedness, which can be lawlessness in the Greek. And because of this increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So be careful because your love can grow cold. Your love toward God and your love toward people. I've seen people down through the years that, that God, I've seen this over and over. I've, I've lost count a long time ago. It's very sad. But I've seen people come through and they get powerfully touched by God. And God really moves in their life years later to see them back in sin, away from God. And if they die, they're going to go to hell. They're, they're not right with God. What happened? Because of the increase of wickedness, the love in their life toward God and toward God's people, toward his house, toward righteousness, grew cold, and now they're away from God. And let me give you a few more scriptures. Proverbs 6, 16. This is a very strong warning in the Bible. These six things the Lord hates. Let me tell you, this is the strongest language in the Bible is when it says that God hates it or it's an abomination. You can't get any stronger than this, okay? God hates this. Seven things are an abomination to him that he utterly hates. Number one is haughty eyes. We don't want our eyes to get filled with pride. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Please hear me tonight, River of Life. Please give me your best ear and hear me. This is a warning from the Holy Spirit. Haughty eyes, pridefulness in our eyes, the way that we look down on other people with judging them and criticizing them is haughty eyes. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devised wicked plans. Number five, feet that run rapidly to evil. So you see descriptive terms here, eyes, tongue, heart, feet, hands. And then it says this, a false witness who declares lies. Let me tell you, a gossiper and a slanderer, that is an evil tongue. I'm going to get to that in a moment. And then it says this, and the one. This is the first time God gave descriptive terms, eyes, hands, feet, all this, right? And then the last one, it says, and the person that sows discord among the brethren. That's scary. I don't know about you, but I've got to live my life on this earth while I'm here. And I don't want there to be a scripture in the Bible that indicates that God has some kind of dark feelings of hatred toward me because I'm tearing up his his relationships in his church and his people. And this right here, you know, the church world, 
looks at certain things out there. Especially like they'll look at sexual immorality and different things and the church world will condemn it and rightfully so. But at the same time, a lot of times, there'll be certain people in that very church that'll condemn all these other things, but they themselves have haughty eyes and they've got a gossiping, foul tongue that God hates. And they're the very ones that will go through a church like a snake slithering around and they will pit people, they will pit people against leaders and against each other through gossip and slander. They'll come in, did you know about so-and-so and this, that, and the other? And they're spreading gossip. God hates it. And if you're not careful, you can fall right into that. It is a foul spirit. You know, isn't it interesting? I know that God calls different things like homosexuality and, and all that and abomination. I know he hates sexual sins, and I know he hates witchcraft and the occult and all of that. I know that. But how many times have you heard this preached? This needs to be preached among God's people because there are people that in churches kind of have socially acceptable sins, if you will. They'll sit around and they call it a prayer meeting, but all they're doing is gossiping. Listen, I'm telling the truth here. God says it in the Word. There are seven things that He hates, and He hates that tongue that is gossiping and lying and, and maliciously slandering people and dividing relationships. All right. And friend, listen, that's the accuser of the brethren right there manifesting through the mouth of people that profess Christianity. Let me read a few more scriptures and I'm going to close. 1 Corinthians 10, God gave us warnings in the Bible. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Remember this in the Exodus. They passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud, which is a type of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the sea, a picture and type of water baptism. They ate the same spiritual food, a picture and type of the communion table today. They drank the same spiritual drink. That's a picture and type of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the waters of the Holy Spirit. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness. Did y'all catch that? Paul's saying here that you're dealing with all these people were considered God's people. Y'all please hear me. All of them collectively were baptized in the cloud and the sea in Moses. They ate the Passover meal. They ate of the manna. They were all considered God's people. They were under the cloud. They were with Moses. They were God's people. But yet, it says about them that many of them, God was not pleased with them. Therefore, they ended up dying in the wilderness. So in verse 6, it says, Now these things happened as an example for us, that we would not crave evil things as they did. And so Paul gives the warnings here. He says, Do not be idolaters, number one. Is there anything in your life that's an idol? Do you have graven images? Do you pray to graven images? Do you have things associated with other religions or the occult? You need to get it out. But also, idolatry is anything in your heart that eclipses your love for God. Is money or material things, relationships in life, is there anything 
that is more important to you than God or alongside God. God wants to have all of your heart or nothing at all. Amen? He wants everything. He wants to be number one in our lives. And I'm going to tell you that there's people that sit through church that have no intention of ever really giving God their whole heart. And in the long run, in a few years from now, just like Israel was laid low, they died in the wilderness, you're going to see them spiritually dead in sin outside of God's house because they refuse to give their whole heart to the Lord. They still harbor those idols in their heart. There are things in their lives that they will not surrender to the Lord. Number two, it says that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Or rather, I'm sorry, number two is verse eight. And committing sexual immorality, as some of them did. You remember the story, how Balaam, he could not curse Israel. So he told Balak, he said, here's what you do. Get all the beautiful women of Moab and the Midianites. Send them in among Israel and the young men to begin to fornicate, have sex with them, and join with them. And through that, God himself will destroy them. So Balaam told Balak, I can't curse them, but if you get them into sin, God himself will turn against their sin. And that way, you can weaken them. And so that's exactly what Balak did. He sent in those beautiful women in there, and many of them fell into it. And it says in the Bible, 23,000 were killed by God because of their sexual immorality. Just like Paul said, their bodies were dropped in the wilderness. They died in the desert, never getting into the promised land because of their sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality in the Bible? any sexual activity outside of a husband and wife in marriage. Sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, all of that is sexual immorality. All right, and then it says in verse 9, here's number 3, don't put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were killed by snakes. You know what happened there? They spoke against Moses. Let me tell you, I'm going to get to that in a moment, but be careful with your mouth speaking against authority figures. Not just pastors, authority figures. And I'm going to come back to that one. Number 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. That is the one thing that Israel did over and over. And don't think that Christians are any better. They grumbled all through the wilderness. They complained. Why don't we have water? Moses gives them water. Then they gripe about the next thing. They don't like the manna anymore. God gives them manna, food from heaven. And they get sick of the manna and start griping about that. So God sends them quail. They get sick of the quail. They gripe about the quail. One grumbling and complaining thing after the next until finally they're at the promised land and they're supposed to go in and they start grumbling and complaining again because there's giants in the land, and God said, I've had enough. The grumbling and complaining has, is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is it. You will not enter the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. But your kids will enter the promised land, and those very giants you're scared of, they'll kill them. 
the grumbling and complaining, discontent, whining and complaining. Well, I don't have this. I want this in life. Why don't? One of the Ten Commandments is to not be covetous and envying what other people have. How many knows that God wants us just to be thankful and content with what we have in life? So all this grumbling and complaining, it releases the destroyer against people. That's death. Now these things happen as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, provide a way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. And then the last two scriptures is this. And this is a warning because remember I said that they spoke against authority. Jude 1.8 There's only one chapter in Jude, so you could just say Jude 8, right? But anyway, excuse me. Yet in the same way, these people, dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, right there, reject authority, and speak abusively against dignitaries. You know what dignitaries are? Authority figures. It can be a boss at work. It can be uh, somebody in a school system, like a principal. It's, it's authority figures over our nation, various authority figures. How many knows that Bible is so clear that God has permitted these realms of authority and the people that are there? He's permitted it. Don't you think that if God didn't want somebody there, they wouldn't be there because their next breath is a gift from him? But here's what the Bible says. Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, how many knows you're not going to get a worse authority figure than the devil? Right? Some of you may think your boss was the devil, but I'm telling you, this is the real devil, okay? You're not going to get a worse authority figure than the devil. And it says about Michael the archangel, he did not dare to condemn or slander the devil, but rather all he said was, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael the archangel had the humility and the wisdom to watch his mouth, to not slander the, even the devil. See, the devil has got Adam's temporary authority. This is a whole big thing to teach on. I don't have time to, but Adam gave the devil his authority for a time until Jesus comes back. And Michael the archangel recognized the authority that God has permitted. God has permitted the devil to temporarily be the prince of the powers of the air. And Michael didn't come in there all cocky, making fun of him, calling him an idiot or something. Instead, the, the Michael understood he was dealing with an authority figure, even though he was evil. And Michael just simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Be careful speaking against authority, even if they're evil authority. Because every authority, God has permitted it. And then James 4, 4, it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
And so when I'm preaching on this, I think by and large, especially in River of Life, people are pretty open to the Word of God. But you always deal with that iniquity in some people. (coughs) That there's a pride and a rebellion in some people. They don't want to hear it. But let me just encourage you tonight. I'm going to pray here in a moment. I want people to really take this to heart. If any of this applies to you, please hear me tonight, River of Life. Because the devil is wandering around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to accuse you before God. And thus, if he's able to make an accusation stick, he wants to be able to release an attack against you. And I feel this is a warning from the Holy Spirit. Be careful about judging and criticizing other people. Number one, the same measure that you judge others, it will come back on you. I could tell stories, true stories that I know for a fact where people got lifted up with pride and they began to speak about somebody else that fell into sin and they said, I would never do that. A year later, they were doing that. Why? Because pride comes before fall. With the same measure you unrighteously judge and criticize others, it will find its way into your life. There was a true story of a lady that another lady's daughter got pregnant, and she said, my daughters would never do that. In a couple years, both of her daughters were pregnant outside of wedlock. Number two, be careful being a gossip and a slanderer. God hates it. There are some people that are just so negative with their tongue, just negative. Talking to them, it's just negative. And the second you ask a question, all of a sudden, here it comes, like vomit. They're just going to spew out all this information about other people that you do not want to know. Oh, they started doing this and the other. Man, they were doing this. They were sleeping with this person. They were doing this. It's like, I didn't ask all that, and I don't want to know your gossip. And I'll tell you something about gossip. A lot of times, it's, it's not even 100% true. But gossip is being a talebearer, going around telling other people's business. Number two is slander. Slander is character defamation, making them look bad behind their back. Smearing them. I say this in love, but God hates gossip and slander, and it does more to serve the devil than probably anything else in the church world. It divides relationships, it destroys people's lives. Number two, or number three, be very careful about being discontented and grumbling. When we wake up in the morning, I mean, all of us can live our lives with either the glass half full or the glass half empty. Every single person, when you wake up in the morning, you can either think about all the things that you actually should be thankful for, or you can spend all your time thinking about all the things that you're not happy about. How many knows that's true? We live in a fallen world. All of us in life have a lot of things to be thankful for, and we've got some other things that we probably wish were different. 
But I choose every day to get up and thank God for all of his protection and his blessing. I very well, just like many of you, I very well could be dead right now. I very well could not have anything in life. I'm legitimately, sincerely thankful that I just have a roof over my head and food to eat. And my wife will tell you, I thank God every night before I go to bed for those things. I remember when I really changed in that area, because growing up here in the States, things are a certain way. But I went on mission trips down into Mexico, and we went into really poor places. And I saw people there. We witnessed to them. We loved them. We prayed with them. But I saw people there that had nothing. And I realized when I got back home, I will never be a grumbler and complainer the rest of my life because there are people out there that have nothing. Number four, be careful about having unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred in your heart. We better be quick to forgive, all of us. I've had times in my life where it was hard to forgive. There's some people that's really burned me. I've been through some stuff with some people. I mean some evil stuff with some people. But I have chosen that I am going to forgive everybody from my heart. And I made up my mind years ago that I'm not going to go to bed at night until I have forgiven everybody. I refuse to go to sleep with unforgiveness in my heart toward anybody. I don't care what they've done to me. That's between them and God. And how many knows that God knows how to take care of all that? Number five, looking with lust. This is a stronghold in many lives. Haughty eyes. Pride gets in the eye, and people begin to look at other people with sexual lust as some kind of an object. Let me tell you, the Bible says that we look with lust, we commit adultery in our hearts. Be careful with lust. Be careful with the looking with lust. It's everywhere. You're going to have to train your eyes to bounce around and not focus in on lustful things. Number six. Be careful speaking against authorities. That is a serious sin, and it's a door. I realize that we do not agree with some leaders in this nation and other nations. I don't agree with policies, and I will continue to speak against bloodshed, whatever, abortion, you know, the sexual immorality, I'll continue to speak against sin, but do not open your mouth and call leaders a bunch of idiots and speak against them in a slanderous way because even Michael the archangel had enough sense about him to not even do that to the devil. As evil as you think they are, they're not the devil. (laughs) Some of you may argue with them, but they're not him, I'm telling you. But that, listen, with all seriousness, that can be a really big door. When you start slandering authorities, you start slandering bosses at work, authority figures in the school system when you're in school, authority figures over the nation, authority figures in the church world. When you start slandering authority, you don't realize really what you're doing, but you're opening the door for something in your life to attack you. And if you don't believe me, then ask Miriam in the Bible when she spoke against Moses. Remember that story? All right, and then number seven, the last thing I would warn is, be careful about being worldly. 
I don't understand this, but I have seen it over the last 15, 20 years. There is a worldliness that has crept into the church world that God will not be mocked. God will never, ever be okay with worldliness. And those people that call themselves Christians, but they got foul mouths full of profanity. They're all marking up their bodies now. They drink. They go out and party like the world. Some of them live together in sexual immorality. God will never accept it. He'll never be okay with it. And the Bible says this. I'll just read it again. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's their choice. And there's a rebellious spirit out there that you talk about. They don't want to hear it. They're going to keep living that way. But in the end, they one day will regret it, I promise you. God will never be okay with worldliness. We need to be careful with what we're watching, what we're listening to, and what we're participating in. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, all of a sudden the things that we used to watch, maybe we watched people take their clothes off and have sex. Maybe we watched all kinds of stuff that was dark and satanic or whatever. Maybe we listened to certain types of music. It was like sexual pornography or it's full of violence and all kinds of filthy language. We used to listen to that. We used to enjoy it. But now as Christians, we can't stand it anymore. You see, something's got to change in us that causes the things we used to watch, the things we used to listen to, the people we used to hang out with, the parties we used to go to, the things we used to participate in. We are no longer that person. We are now crucified with Christ. We are a new creation in him. The old life passes away. Everything becomes new. We're different. And people that God gives them a chance, they refuse to really change. They resist the Holy Spirit. They're still going to have that in their life. You watch. In a few years, they'll be out of church, away from God, on their way to hell, because they never really committed to him. How long do you think a marriage would last? You marry somebody, but you just refuse to quit sleeping around on them. One mistress after the next, one affair after the next. How long do you think that marriage is going to last? Is it going to last long term? Even if that person is a very forgiving person, eventually your um, unfaithfulness will destroy that marriage. In the same way, God is merciful and he's forgiving. But if you keep on cheating on him with all this other stuff and you keep on and keep on and keep on, eventually you will destroy that relationship you once had with God. And it's your choice to do it. And God loves people with all of his heart enough that he came here, clothed himself with flesh and died a very horrible death for us. He went all the way for us. I mean, it was Jesus didn't go halfway. He went all the way to the cross. He went all the way to every um, beating, every piercing, every bruising, the six hours hanging naked on a cross, humiliated, beat half to death. He went all the way for us. And what he expects for us, he wants to have our whole life or nothing at all. And so I'm asking River of Life, we're going to pray here in a moment. And I, I'm asking you, please, Pray about these things in your life. If any of this tonight hits home with you, because I'm telling you as a warning from the Holy Spirit, the devil is roaming around looking for an opportunity to devour. 
And if we don't repent of our sin and we continue in sin, it gives him a door to come in and attack. And spiritual attacks can be pretty vicious. If the enemy has a door, he can come in to try to steal, kill, and destroy, and it can be pretty bad. And once you open the door to him, it's not always easy to get rid of him. And so we're going to pray in just a second. But I, I just feel this tonight. I remember at Brownsville here in Steveville over and over and over talk about these things. Jesus went all the way for us. And he wants our whole life or none of it. He doesn't want you holding his hand and also holding the devil's hand at the same time. Eventually, you're going to be required to choose who you're going to serve. You cannot play games with God. You may fool people, but God knows, and he'll, he'll never be okay with our compromise, our hypocrisy, and all that. He won't. Eventually, we'll give an account. So I want us to pray. I'm going to pray, and then we'll shut down recordings, but I want us to pray here. Lord, for all those that are watching and listening, I thank you for this word tonight. I thank you for this warning from the Holy Spirit. We have got to line our lives up with the word we do not want to open the door to the devil. We want to keep the devil out of our lives in Jesus' name. So go ahead and shut down recordings and let me know when you're, when you're done with that. And I want us to pray. I need one of those pages that had um, the deep repentance. If there's an extra one, I need one up here for me. Thank you, buddy. I want us to pray. Can you just put on that same music?